Yes, we're in Acts chapter 8. We're reading from verse uh, 26 down to verse 40 at the end of the chapter. It's in relation to Philip and the Ethiopian. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he set out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in, the cha- in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The, sp- the spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with the very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on, re- on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared as Ostus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to Matt's. My name's Rod. If you're new or visiting, it's great to have you with us. And we've reached the end of our Term 3 series um, in Acts 1 to 8, as we do this final instalment at the end of Acts 8 this morning. Um, so uh, with that in mind, let me pray for us as we um, prepare to look at this section of God's Word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the Bible that you have made available to us in our own language that we might read and understand Uh, of your great work in this world, not only being our creator but also our sustainer and the one who sent Jesus for us. We ask that as we consider uh, him and our response to him this morning that you might help us to think clearly uh, about what you have done for us and what you are calling us to do in response. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the past 20 centuries, uh, Christian, various Christian denominations around the world um, have held that certain sites are especially sacred centres of worship. And so the centre for the Presbyterian Church is St Andrews in Edinburgh. Uh, for Anglicans, it's Canterbury Cathedral in England. And for Catholics, St Peter's in Rome. In the Catholic tradition, um, St Peter's and other sacred sites have often attracted pilgrims Uh, who have sought to draw near to God by visiting this special place. 
And so Christine and I got to visit uh, Fatima in Portugal, uh, which has a long tradition as a destination for Catholic pilgrims because three children claim to have seen Mary there, Jesus' mother, in 1917. And so ever since, millions of people have flocked there each year to visit the church and see the statue that's been erected at the location of this supposed apparition. We've also visited St Peter's Basilica in Rome, where I can remember being impressed but at the same time alienated by the size of the building. Uh, ancient tradition has it that um, Peter the Apostle uh, was crucified and buried and that his um, tomb is there under the main altar at St Peter's. And as a result, uh, many Catholics... Uh, will claim that this site in the Vatican City is the centre of Christian worship and there's this constant line of believers, of pilgrims, who are lighting candles as they go down into the crypt of Peter, hoping that through this ritual they will draw near to God. Well, 2,000 years ago, a eunuch from Ethiopia travelled five months to reach the temple in Jerusalem to draw near to God. By the time of the early church in Acts that we're reading about, the Jews had been worshipping God at this site in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Worship centred on this sacred site where various animal sacrifices were made to atone for the sin of people, where prayers were offered. But is this the way to draw near to God today? It brings us to the question that I want us to consider from the passage this morning. How are we to find God? How are we to draw near and find God, to be in relationship with him? We have three answers to that question this morning. First answer is this, by seeking him through his word. We do this by seeking him through his word. Notice again what is recorded in Acts 8, verses 26 to 28. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. You see, soon after the departure of Peter and John from Samaria, uh, Philip was given another evangelistic commission. But this time it's not mass evangelism in the city of Samaria, rather it's one-on-one -on -one personal evangelism, an individual that he was to connect with who's travelling south from Jerusalem to Gaza. That road passed through a wilderness area with Gaza being down about 60 miles to the south on the Mediterranean coast uh, from the capital. It was the main road south to Egypt and then into Africa, and so it was the route home for this Ethiopian man. But it's a fairly remote setting. He was to meet this Ethiopian eunuch, and Ethiopia referred to a kingdom that was then about a 1,000 miles south from the coast uh, on, at Egypt. It's now actually what we would call Sudan. It sort of extends beyond what we know as the nation of Ethiopia today. He's made this long journey to worship God 
the God of Israel, in Jerusalem. He'd sought to draw near to God at the sacred site of the temple. He was probably a God-fearer, someone who worshipped the God of Israel but was not fully integrated into Jewish society. Although it's possible that he might have been part of the Jewish dispersion, that he had a a Jewish parent perhaps, it's unlikely that he was a full Jewish convert coming from such a location. And being a eunuch was not uncommon in the ancient world for officials in a royal court. They were often thought to be more trustworthy, particularly around females within the court. And so we learned that he was an important official. He was in charge of all the treasury of the queen of the country. And so it's not surprised, surprising for us to read that he's being driven in a chariot. This man is a man of great wealth. Now, we're not told what his experience was in Jerusalem, but there was no doubt some frustration for him. Because he was a eunuch, the law actually says in Deuteronomy 23 that he could not enter the temple precincts or the assembly of the Lord. Even if he had been able to enter part of the temple, perhaps the outer court of the Gentiles, he would have been left disappointed still. As Jesus had said to the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. You see, it was no longer the case that a person could draw near to the God of the Bible by going to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple had represented God's presence with his people. But the arrival of Jesus had meant that God was now present in the flesh, in the person of his son. The temple had only ever pointed forward to Jesus, and so now it was obsolete with the arrival of Christ. And with Christ's return to heaven following his death and resurrection, he was present to his followers by the gift of his spirit. And this truth was present in the scriptures, which they had, which we call the Old Testament today. And so the Ethiopian eunuch no doubt went away from his pilgrimage to the temple unfulfilled. Despite his yearning to know God, he had not grown closer in his relationship to God through visiting this sacred site. But his visit to Jerusalem wasn't a waste of time. He had been assisted because in his longing to find God, he had obtained this scroll of the book of Isaiah. We're not told how. It would have been extremely costly to get hold of this. There were very limited copies, and they certainly weren't given out to outsiders like him. And so he probably paid a fortune to get hold of this. He's a rich man, though. He's in charge of the treasury of the kingdom of Ethiopia. And so money is no object to him in his quest to find God. And so he leaves the capital with this precious scroll of the book of Isaiah. And he now looks to know God through his word rather than a special place, through his word in which God reveals his plan for our world and for our very lives. Now, look, maybe you are a spiritual seeker today, or you have been one in the past. Perhaps you had your own pilgrimage to a special place as you sought to connect with God. But perhaps you've been pursuing 
a more secular belief or practice that is more about your own self-improvement or about finding something within yourself. So many in our world today, especially in the last 50 or 60 years, have not sought out necessarily the God of the Bible, but they've desired a spiritual connection of some sort. And so they've gone looking in many places. And of course, lots of celebrities are well known for doing this as well. In the winter of 1968, the British pop band The Beatles famously made a trip uh, to the Maharishi Ashram in Rikikesh, India, as because they were fascinated with transcendental meditation. They were seeking spiritual understanding through meditation. But as the Beatles retreated to India, optimistic about the possibilities of peace and harmony, their optimism quickly turned to disillusionment with the Maharishi and his teachings. They decided that he was a shady character, more interested in the promotion of himself and his ashram, and he certainly got a lot of good photos out of them. They didn't feel like they had found spiritual enlightenment through this practice of meditation at this special site. And frankly, that's the experience of lots of people who go looking in many places to connect with God. The British writer David Wells says in his book, Above All Earthly Powers, that the more secular spiritual seeker yearns for something that will fulfill and satisfy, but they want to approach the sacred through the self to find what they need within themselves. There's often a rejection of universal truth and some overarching narrative but the result is that we end up with our own subjective truths and they don't satisfy us for long what we actually need he argues is an objective truth and god's revelation to us in his word the bible is just that wells argues that rather than finding the answers within we actually need to find our place in the larger story of god's plan let me encourage you this morning, if you've never actually read the Bible fully for yourself as an adult, that you take it up and consider that you might find God and what he reveals about himself to you in his word, the Bible, as he promises to. Let me encourage you, we have lots of free Bibles out in the foyer. We'd love you to grab one over morning tea and to take it home and to read it for yourself. But that brings me to a second answer to this question of how we're to find God. Secondly, we're to find God by seeing that his word focuses on Jesus. By seeing that his word focuses on Jesus. Notice again what is stated in verses 30 to 35. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. This is a really interesting interaction, isn't it? Philip comes alongside the chariot, 
Um, at God's instruction, he hears the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Apparently, most people read aloud in those days. It was the practice of the way they were trained to read. And so this is not an unlikely scenario as we might think. We tend to read in our head as we read a book today. And the chariot's obviously traveling slowly. Um, he's able to jog along beside it and be close enough to sort of shout out a question and ask if the man understands what he's reading. And the yearning to know God, notice here from the Ethiopian eunuch, has produced this humble attitude. He's desperate to understand, and he's quite ready to have help. And he invites Philip up into his chariot to explain the scroll that he's obtained. God had not only providentially supplied him this very precious scroll of Isaiah, but he's provided a teacher to explain it to him too. And the passage that was being read is from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. It's one of the servant songs of that section of Isaiah that we considered uh, just last year. And it describes a man who is suffering, who experiences deep humiliation and who is ultimately killed. And so the Ethiopian naturally asks, well, who is the prophet speaking about? Is this is he writing about himself or somebody else? You see, there was no expectation in the first century in any writings that were found amongst the Jews that the promised Messiah who they were all waiting for would be somebody that came and suffered and died. It was just not their expectation. Despite passages like Isaiah 53, they were expecting a triumphant king who would throw off the Roman rule. It was Jesus himself who had taught his first disciples that Isaiah 53 was fulfilled in his life and death. We see this in a number of places in the Gospels. For example, in Luke 22, verse 37, Jesus stated, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And so there Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 12, a few verses after the passage that the eunuch is reading, and he tells his first disciples that it's all about him. And so Philip is given this perfect message, this perfect passage from the eunuch to show that God's word and his plan of salvation actually all centers on his son, the Lord Jesus. That the center of how God has revealed himself in this world is the sending of his son to live amongst us. It's Jesus' death that pays for our sins and wins us forgiveness offers us salvation. This is the good news. And notice that the Ethiopian needed to find God. All he needed was his word. It was just to open scripture. And he could now see that God's word was focused on Jesus and he readily put his faith in him. Now, as we apply this section to ourselves today, if you're a Christian here, there's a great encouragement to grasp the opportunities to be a guide to explain God's word, to be ready to share about Jesus with another. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to do that with any person. But perhaps you're thinking, well, you know, such a scenario would just rarely happen today. And I don't mean that you'll be jogging beside a chariot. I mean that, you know, people rarely are found reading the Bible, asking questions, can you explain Jesus to me? Uh, so often today, people don't trust the Bible. They don't even accept that there is a God. They dismiss the very notion of a God. 
that there are any universal truths, that there is any plan for this world. And so opportunities to actually share our faith like this just seem limited. You know, the conversations I might have week by week seem rare in this sense. But there are ways to connect people from their own experiences in this world to Jesus. In our book of the term, uh, Making Faith Magnetic by Daniel Strange, he argues that although it may be that people aren't readily reading the Bible in front of us and asking questions about Jesus, that doesn't mean there aren't points of connection. Because our culture keeps talking about themes that relate to all of us in our humanity, that we all have questions about. And he asserts that there's actually five big themes that constantly come up which all people are thinking through at some point in their life. The way we connect with others and the world around us, the way we're to live out our lives, are there standards, rules to live by, the way out, is there a way out of the struggles that we face in this world? We see so many problems, we don't see the answers. The way of control, you know, is there some way of me actually getting hold of the future? Is it just fatalism and it just, you know, I've got no control over anything that happens? Is there any plan? Or am I just wandering along aimlessly in this life? Or finally, is there a way beyond? Is there something beyond this material world? Is this all there is? We wander around suffering for 70, 80 years and then we die and that's it. Is that all there is to life? And he says, well, all humans are asking these questions at some point. And as he states, Christians are in the business of offering other people a person. Our good news is not that we offer commodities or even things like forgiveness and peace. Christians are in the business of offering people the Lord Jesus and it is he who brings forgiveness and who gives peace. Well, I hope you're encouraged as you think about the opportunities even before us this week. 30,000 people a day coming to Wollongong because of this cycling race. There's great opportunities to connect with what we know, the answers that we see in Jesus. And that brings me to a third and final answer. Third and final answer to our question of how we're to find God. Not only by seeking him in his word, not only by realising that it all centres on Jesus, but thirdly, if we've grasped that, that we identify with Jesus, by identifying with Jesus. Notice again what is recorded in the last part, verses 36 to 39. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Well, you may have noticed as we read those verses that verse 37 is missing, although it may appear as a footnote in your Bible. Um, verse 37 in the footnote reads this, Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. Remember, Eunuch had asked in verse 36, what might prevent me from being baptised right now? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, those two sentences have been removed from our most recent copies of the Bible because they, not, they don't appear in the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have. So they're seen as perhaps a later edition. 
but they seem to have belonged to a baptismal liturgy or wording that was used for baptisms in the first century. This is how somebody might be ready and respond to making that public statement of their faith in Jesus. It highlights a crucial point, doesn't it, in a person becoming a Christian, that it's about their belief, it's about the inward change of heart, their belief in Jesus that he is their saviour, the one who has paid for their sin. And so baptism that follows is simply an external symbol of that internal decision that's already taken place. If a person does reach the point of accepting that Jesus is the answer, the one who they need to believe in to receive forgiveness, to have peace in this fallen, chaotic world, then we want to identify with him publicly through baptism. If we're convinced that he is the way to God because he is God in the flesh, the Son of God who came to live amongst us, then we want to actually demonstrate where our allegiance lies. And so throughout the book of Acts, whenever a person repents of their sin and places their trust in Jesus, the very next thing they do is to be baptised, to acknowledge their allegiance to Jesus. And baptism is a symbol that represents the washing away of our sins, as the person goes down into the water, it's like their old life is ending. They're being buried and they rise again out of the water to new life that they live through Christ. It's a picture of these spiritual truths. And it was the practice of the church from the first day. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, first sermon by Peter at Pentecost, the result, 3,000 people baptized at the end of that day. Why is that the case? Well, because Jesus in his final instructions to his disciples in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission commands that people not only make disciples but baptize disciples. Matthew 28, these famous words, verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The command is to make, bapt- uh, make disciples. But then there's two sub-clauses that follow from that command, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You see, when Jesus himself was baptized, he identified with those he came to save. But when we're baptised, we're acknowledging Jesus as our Saviour and Lord. We identify with him. Now, we know what it looks like, don't we, to nail our colours to the mast when it comes to playing for a sporting team or following a sport. We wear the jersey. We know where we stand. As the cycling championships begin in Wollongong today, no doubt you have run into the various teams training over the last few days, as our family has. Uh, we've run into the Spanish, the French, and the Italian. Not literally. We didn't want to knock them over. But we, we, we've seen them. There they are in their matching colours. They've all got their same shirts on, you know, France down the side, whatever it is. You can't miss who they are with. We know what country they're from. They proudly identified who they belong to in a very transparent manner. What's well, the same with Christians? We're called to do the same to say that we're on Team Jesus through this symbol of baptism, which we'll see later in our services. Luke is baptised this morning. And as we wrap up our series in this first part of Acts today, I hope that you've been encouraged to see the incredible spread of the unstoppable gospel in Acts 1-8. to 
through the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus outlined in Acts 1.8 that the disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Three-stage program, if you like, of the spread of the gospel outwards from Jerusalem. And at this point in the storyline, persecution has propelled the gospel out of Jerusalem. And so it's now into Judea and Samaria. And this eunuch actually represents a kind of an intermediate step. Although he's from the Gentile world, he's in Africa, he's, this event where he is witnessed to and then is baptised is in Judea. It's in the southern part of Judea. And he's not fully a Gentile in the sense that he's at least a God-fearer. He has some connection with the Jewish faith already. That final step of the gospel going to the Gentiles will happen from Acts 10 when Peter goes to Cornelius and his household. But I want you to see this morning that you are part of the ongoing story of Acts. We've been writing Acts 29 and beyond for the last 2,000 years because the story doesn't stop at Acts 28. The gospel continues to go out each day as we are part of the Great Commission, continue to share the gospel. We have a wonderful opportunity day on day, week on week, especially this week with the cycling championships being here. 30,000 people a day, thousands of visitors here in our city. We've got walk-up teams going out to share the gospel, hand out tracts, invite them to our movie here on the Wednesday night. There's a team from our church going to meet at the Presbyterian Church um, there on Borelli Street at 1 p.m. We'd love you to join them if you want to be part of that. They're going to be going out with a track that explains about cycling and a connection to Jesus, and there'll be invitations to come to see the movie on Wednesday night. Love you to be part of that. Or you might want to invite a friend on Wednesday night. Come along to this historical documentary about Arthur Stace, which presents his faith and how he came to be a believer and then wanted to express that to people by writing in chalk on the streets of Sydney for 35 years for it to be immortalised then at the 2000 fireworks as we brought in the new millennium and then it was celebrated again later that year at the Olympics in Sydney in September. Come and see that story and the influence and bring somebody along to hear it that they might reflect on the powerful truth that we're actually made for an eternal relationship with God. Or maybe you just want to come along to the Christianity Explored course that starts this Thursday or invite a friend and come with them. We'd love to see you there. There are so many opportunities for us to be on mission, to continue Christ's work of presenting the good news through his word. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, that it is powerful in showing us your great love for us in the sending of your Son, that you desire a relationship with us so much that you went to the great lengths of sending the Lord Jesus to earth, that he might live as we do, but then bear our sin, bear the punishment they deserve, that he died on the cross for us, that we might be given freedom and forgiveness, new life, right relationship with you. Lord, we pray that for any who have not taken hold of that this morning, that you might Help them to understand your great love for them in sending Jesus. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus already, help us to be ready to share this wonderful news with all those around us. We ask for your help in this, that you might guide us by your Spirit. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.